Hello and welcome to the Spinal Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And once again, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we are here today to talk about uh, one of the things that we always talk to patients about with spinal procedures. So we have a risk of complications that are that are known. And there are many things that we talk about when we're doing consents for patients, you know, pain, bleeding, infection, risks of, da- of damage to blood vessels or nerves. Uh, and one of those complications um, is a spinal headache. And so we have data that shows that, you know, you do enough procedures around the spine that it is going to happen for patients. And uh, there are a number of things that we can do to try to help people out. So Dr. K, why don't you uh, introduce us a little farther into uh, exactly what we're going to be talking about, and then we'll get into some of the literature. Yes. And and yeah, just like Dr. Hovis said, you know, if you for for those of us, you know, taking care of patients, um, when we're taking care of patients that either we're doing these procedures for, or if you're taking care of patients who are receiving these procedures, you know, eventually in your career, you're most likely going to be in a situation where you are dealing with a uh, posterior puncture headache uh, due to the cerebrospinal fluid leak. It's it's a very strong uh, possibility throughout your career. So good just to be aware of that presentation and uh, management. And obviously, we always do everything we can to minimize and decrease the risk of complications, but we want to be able to appropriately diagnose and manage those if they do arise. So starting with a simple definition, so based upon the International Headache Society definition for posterior puncture headache, this is a headache occurring within five days of lumbar puncture caused by CSF, cerebrospinal fluid leakage, through dural puncture. It is usually accompanied by neck stiffness and or subjective hearing symptoms. It remits spontaneously within two weeks or after sealing of the leak with autologous epidural uh, patch. Um, now, uh, obviously that's the uh, definition that, uh, uh, by the International Headache Society, but um, there are case reports out there, of course, like many other disease processes that, are, uh, that may stray from that definition, uh, including the onset being later than five days and including uh, chronic posterior puncture headaches lasting uh, you know, longer than two weeks. But like I said, for the most part, um, that's going to be your definition. That's what the majority of the presentations are going to fall within. Always important to think about the uh, differential diagnosis. So uh, when we are dealing with a patient that does have a headache you know, within that time period, five, five days from a uh, procedure involving the, uh, uh, the spine, um, and the epidural space. Uh, other, other considerations to keep in your mind include obviously common causes of headache, migraine, tension headaches, uh, caffeine withdrawal headaches, sinusitis. Uh, obviously in a pregnant woman, you wanna be thinking about preeclampsia as well. Pneumocephalus is a really important one. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more in terms of the clinical presentation, but uh, one huge difference between pneumocephalus and uh, posterior puncture headache is that gonna be, it's gonna be with pneumocephalus, um, uh, the headache is actually gonna get worse in the uh, recumbent position or when you're uh, laying flat. Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, and obviously, you know, for these procedures, uh, patients uh, are in pain, they're laying down for extended periods of time. We may be doing these in elderly patients who have uh, cardiovascular uh, comorbidities and hypertension at baseline. So, you know, if during the case, the patient's blood pressure went up quite a bit, then obviously, you know, significant headache after the procedure, you wanna be uh, thinking about uh, those possibilities, including uh, intracranial hemorrhage as well uh, on your differential. Um, so 
uh, moving from the differential diagnosis to the epidemiology of posterior puncture headache. So, you know, as uh, Dr. Hovez brought up in the beginning, we know, you know, based upon literature, this is a known complication. The incidence of posterior puncture headache after spinal anesthesia is very variable. Uh, studies that I uh, saw, uh, you know, preparing for this talk ranged anywhere from 0.2 to 24%. We'll talk a little bit about why that uh, variability, but there's a lot of things that come into play. The needle size, you know, what gauge needle you're needing, the, the type of uh, point of the needle, um, obviously the type of procedure you're doing, how many attempts, the patient themselves. There's a lot of things that come into play in terms of what's the incidence of uh, developing a posterior puncture headache after a procedure. Um, but the, on average, uh, a general accepted incidence uh, after, a, after spinal anesthesia in terms of a posterior puncture headache is about equal to or less than 3%. Um, uh, like I said, you know, the procedure type, the needle type, those all come into play, but uh, those numbers uh, generally uh, generally ring true um, in terms of the epidemiology. In, in terms of those risk factors that I just brought up, so proven risk factors for posterior puncture headache include uh, patients younger than 50 years old. So uh, an elderly patient uh, getting these procedures are going to be a little less likely to develop, but for a young person, they are going to be at uh, increased risk. Female patients, obviously pregnant women, and part of what comes into play there is, you know, obviously they're going to be receiving their epidural for the delivery, and then after the delivery of the baby, their intra-abdominal pressure is going to drop significantly. That's uh, going to decrease the epidural pressure as well. So if there was any compromise to the dura, that's going to increase their risk of uh, posterior puncture headache. Um, using loss of resistance with air versus saline. So interestingly enough, studies show that um, there, if there is accidental dural puncture, if the procedure was done with loss of resistance to air, it's about 65% uh, chance of uh, getting a posterior puncture headache versus 10% uh, with loss of resistance to saline. Rotation of the epidural needle in the epidural space, uh, you know, based upon your training, I know uh, with my training there was um, a lot of emphasis put on, you know, once you're in that epidural space to try to avoid as much as you can rotation of the needle. One of the reasons being that studies would show that that does increase your risk of uh, uh, of, of developing a, a posterior puncture headache. Um, so like we said, needle size, that's a huge thing. So uh, these numbers just demonstrate that. So for cases where you're using a 26 gauge needle, um, there was about a 5%. In cases where you had documented uh, or, or concern for accidental dural puncture, there was about a 5% risk of developing posterior puncture headache versus a, a 16 gauge or larger needle, it was about 80%. So you can see the huge discrepancy there and obviously common sense, uh, you know, the size of the uh, compromise to the dura. Um, yeah. Sorry, did you yeah. say eighty percent chance of posterior puncture headache? Was if if there was if oh, there was okay. yeah determined to be so you know uh, on aspiration you were getting Got CSF it. black okay. yeah yeah okay yeah um, and or and or if you were uh, yeah yeah so yeah so if if there was documented concern for uh, um, compromising the dura yeah. Um, and then the, so if you are performing a uh, lumbar puncture to obtain CSF, the orientation of the needle bevel has been found to be really important too. Obviously being perpendicular to the long axis and to the fibers of the dura, that's going to increase your risk of a posterior puncture headache. And then multiple attempts is another uh, uh, risk factor. So. Uh, moving from risk factors to the typical clinical pe presentation. So the keys here uh, uh, obviously are going to be a couple of things. So 
history of dural puncture clearly um, with the potential uh, dural compromise, but then posture, postural component of a headache is, is the huge thing you're looking for on the history. Other important things, the location. Uh, so usually for a posterior puncture headache, it's going to be bifrontal or occipital uh, location. The severity can be very variable. So some people have fairly mild symptoms. Some people have very excruciating uh, symptoms. And obviously that's usually going to correlate with the, uh, with the degree of compromise of the dura. Um, yes, Dr. Hovis. <laughs> Do, uh, Dr. Carvelis, can you uh, explain what the postural uh, positioning means uh, when you're saying that about the these headaches just just to uh, educate our audience that may not know what that term means oh yeah uh, uh, simply simply put that when you know lying flat um, in general the uh, pressure gradient between the uh, uh, intracranial uh, uh, cerebral spinal fluid uh, uh, space versus the spinal uh, cerebral spinal fluid space they're going to be relatively equal um, and, and therefore, um, uh, there's going to be less, as we'll talk about when we're talking about the pathophysiology, there's going to be less tension or uh, pull on the pain-generating structures in the, uh, in the brain. Um, however, when you sit up or stand up, um, uh, there's going to be, uh, obviously with gravity, there's going to be significantly lower um, uh, uh, pressure in the uh, subarachnoid space in the uh, brain uh, uh, intracranial, intracranially and as a consequence uh, symptoms tend to be a lot worse in the sitting or standing position versus when the patient lies flat. Got it. So lying down, no headache, sitting up or standing, headache. Correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to be clear. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and timing wise, so usually the onset of the headache for posterior puncture headache occurs within the first 24 to 48 hours, but it may occur uh, within uh, five days, as, as we remember that definition from the International Headache Society. It rarely may occur later, and like I said, there's case reports regarding that, but for the most part, we're looking at within five days, usually within the first 24 to 48 hours. Um, and then like we talked about, in terms of accentuating factors, upright position, coughing, straining, those are all things that uh, can increase the symptoms. Associated symptoms, importantly, nausea is a big one. The theory behind that is the tension on the vagal nerve that, um, that uh, can be uh, uh, developed in, in these settings. Decreased appetite, photophobia, and uh, tinnitus uh, are other, other uh, common associated symptoms. In terms of the uh, pathophysiology of this, so <clears throat> um, uh, whenever we're thinking about the pathophysiology, I think it's good to do a quick review of what's normal. I think one of the best things I was ever told in medical school, which I, which I think we were all told at some point, is uh, you know, to, to really understand abnormal, you want to see normal over and over and over again, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, times, because the more you understand normal, then you know what's not, uh, what's not normal. So uh, the normal uh, physiology of, uh, uh, of cerebral spinal fluid and the uh, subarachnoid space, so um, normal CSF uh, or cerebral spinal fluid volume is 150 milliliters. Um, and that's typically about equal between the intracranial and spinal, cerebral spinal fluid uh, uh, spaces, um, e equally distributed that, between that total 150 milliliters. Um, the normal human usually creates about 450 to 500 milliliters of cerebral spinal fluid per day, per 24 hours. Um, so as you can see, uh, as long as you can stop that leakage, you're e easily going to produce enough cerebral spinal fluid to uh, to put you back in a position where you shouldn't be having that uh, posterior puncture headache. So, the key is we we want to uh, you know allow the body and or help the body uh, heal up that that dural leak.
that, that dural compromise. Um, just real quickly, as a kind of a more basic science review, so we, as we know, 90% of the cerebral spinal fluid is produced through filtration of the blood in the choroid plexus and the third and fourth ventricles. The remaining 10% is created by the uh, brain parenchyma itself. And then that CSF, as it circulates through, and there's different theories, which we won't get into at this time, but there's different theories of how that CSF uh, circula uh, circulates. But then ultimately, it's absorbed through the superior sagittal and uh, transverse venous sinuses. Um, so. Now, th oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, since you're going through some anatomy, can you, um, just in case some of our listeners um, may not uh, have covered their uh, spinal anatomy recently, um, we're, we're talking about you know epidural space or um, you know dural or you know trying to do you know uh, lumbar punctures. Can you just go through a, a fairly quick? I don't know. Quick's hard for you, but <laughs> but a, a quick uh, educational component on those layers um, that we're talking about, so people can understand the differentiation of what those spaces are. Oh, sh uh, sure. Uh, just real quickly, I guess the way I used to remember it in uh, med school was DAP uh, for whatever, whatever reason. <laughs> uh, dura rac yeah. dura arachnoid pia uh, going from outer to inner. Um, obviously, that pia matter is going to be directly on the neurologic structures themselves. Um, and then the arachnoid uh, uh, layer, so below that arachnoid layer, that's going to be where the cerebrospinal fluid itself is uh, located. Um, uh, and then the uh, dura matter, and that between the dura and arachnoid matter, that's really a potential space. Um, which when we're looking at dye spread and worrying about complications of epidural procedures, that's when that starts to come into play. But the majority of the procedures we do as uh, interventional pain physicians is going to be in that epidural space. Um, so yeah, so dura being the most outer lining arachnoid, pia matter, and the cerebral spinal fluid being between uh, the arachnoid and pia. And then where's the, sorry, where's the epidural space uh, in accordance to all of those? Uh, so the most superficial or yeah, most outer, yeah. And, and as we know, that epidural space is going to be predominantly uh, uh, containing epidural fat and then venous structures um, uh, without any arterial structures. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So now, um, uh, so sorry, uh, now that we've reviewed that kind of normal physiology in terms of the uh, pathophysiology, so essentially uh, what we're having is we're having a loss of CSF, uh, cerebral spinal fluid, through the dural compromise, which is going to cause decreased cerebral spinal fluid volume and consequent low intracranial pressure. And uh, uh, the problem with that, and, you know, that, and that, that's all relatively obvious, um, but the problem with that is that it results in uh, increased intracranial tension or traction on pain-sensitive uh, intracranial structures, and those uh, include um, obviously the nerves, uh, cranial nerves, meningeal vessels. Uh, there's going to be a lot of the uh, pain generation that's uh, going to occur. Other structures as well, but like I said, the main things are the nerves and the meninge meningeal vessels. Um, now, one important thing about the pathophysiology, although this is very rare, as we'll come up, uh, as we'll discuss briefly here in terms of the numbers, but I think. You know, it's always important to, you know, as physicians uh, and, and Dr. Hovez, uh, you know, being one of my uh, role models and mentors here, uh, he he's always told me a good thing. And when we're looking at a patient, we're worried about a potential complication, you know, uh, kind of on the outside. And when you're interacting with the patient, you want to be as reassuring and as calm as possible. In your head, you're <laughs> you're thinking about the worst possible complications and making sure that you're ruling those out and uh, addressing those um, uh, as best you can. So what would be the worst possible complication of a posterior puncture headache? Um, so with 
with severe prolonged decreased CSF pressure, you can actually get a subdural hemorrhage, and the mortality rate of that is very high, 14% uh, in, the, in the literature. So that's, you know, that's kind of in the back of your mind, although very, very rare, as, as I'll talk about here in a second in terms of the numbers, but that's kind of the, the uh, like I said, the thing in the back of your mind that you want to be monitoring and making sure the patient is not uh, at risk for or developing. Um, so, uh, uh, as I said, 14% mortality rate and a high rate of persistent neurologic complications in survivors. There was a literature review done on this in 2005, and uh, what they found at the time of that literature review, and uh, unfortunately I couldn't find more recent uh, studies because uh, this, you know, being 15 years old at this point, but at that point in history, um, through the entire history of, uh, you know, spinal anesthesia, epidural procedures, what they found was a total of 25 total cases for spinal anesthesia procedures and 21 total cases for uh, epidural procedures. So not even, you know, if you were to look at, obviously there's, you know, so many of these procedures done that that wouldn't even really register as a statistic, but just to know that, uh, that those very rare uh, complications can occur if it's severe and prolonged enough. And I think that's, uh, there's multiple reasons for cons considering the blood patch, but one of them would be to prevent this kind of devastating complication. All right, well, you, you kind of hinted at some of the ways that we're gonna be um, talking about treatment, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's use that as a nice little transition point. So ha we have this, we're identifying it, the story fits, we've got these postural headaches, uh, where you know ap a couple of days to a few days after the procedure, um, you know what are we? How are we talking the patient through this? What are we thinking uh, as far as uh, you know treatment options uh, for the patient? Yeah. So the the treat when we think about the treatment, obviously the overall goal, which uh, we alluded to here, is to restore the the cerebral spinal fluid pressure and minimize the risk of complications. Um, it's important to keep in mind that the natural history of posterior puncture headaches is that they do resolve with time. So up to 90% of cases will resolve within the first day, uh, within the first 10 days of onset, naturally. Um, so you could very much, you know, depending upon the severity of symptoms, depending upon the procedure itself uh, and the gauge needle you use, you know, your, your level of concern, you could very much take a conservative approach. Conservative options include bed rest, because, you know, as we talked about, there's a very strong postural component to this. So, you know, lying flat's gonna minimize symptoms. Um, you can utilize uh, analgesic medications, Tylenol, NSAIDs, a short course of judicious use of opioids if the symptoms are more severe. Caffeine's an interesting one uh, because there's definitely, there, there's actually randomized uh, controlled studies showing the efficacy of caffeine for postural puncture headaches. But the important thing to keep in mind is that, you know, this headache gets worse with, standing, with uh, sitting and standing up and caffeine is a diuretic. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind is that although there's evidence for it uh, in terms of treating it, you may have that patient up more going to the restroom and potentially, and the same thing goes with hydration because, uh, you know, that's something that I think kind of naturally may come to our minds. Oh, you know, stay hydrated. You definitely don't want that patient to be dehydrated, but you don't want them to be excessively drinking either because two things. Number one, there's no literature to support that that would actually increase CSF production. And then on top of that, um, uh, then again, they may be going to the restroom more and sitting up and standing up more. Um, I've literally never thought about how much patients have to use the restroom from caffeine. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and then the last thing being abdominal binders, again, not amazing evidence, but uh, potentially that could increase the, uh, the uh, pressure in the epidural space and, uh, and epidural uh, and, and in the venous uh, vasculature as well. Um, now, 
uh, epidural, the autologous epidural blood patch because you know if the uh, patient uh, is not responding to conservative management and or you know you're concerned enough based upon the severity of the symptoms and wanting to mitigate you know uh, minimize risk for that patient uh, the autologous epidural blood patch is the gold standard for a significant or, or refractory posterior puncture headache. Um, just as a quick note, other substances have been used in the epidural space, dextrin and normal saline. There are studies for both of those. Dextrin usually would be the one uh, to be considered more so than normal saline because it is a higher uh, molecular weight and as a consequence stays in that epidural space a little longer. Um, uh, but neither the dextran or the normal saline has um, as high a success rate or as sustained a success rate as the blood patch. Um, just a real quick history on the blood patch. So it was first described in 1960 by Dr. Garmley, but then it was really brought to the forefront of a treatment option for posterior puncture headache by Dr. Uh, D. Giovanni. And uh, in, in his study published in 1970 in anesthesia and analgesia, it was 50 patients with posterior puncture headache, and they really had a significant benefit with the use of autologous blood patch. Just... Um, Real quickly, in terms of the mechanism of action, so there's the obvious mechanism of action of the tamponade uh, uh, of the dural leak and the rise in the epidural pressure and consequently the, the subarachnoid pressure. But the other thing to keep in mind too is that the autologous blood contributes to the formation of that fib fibrin clot that's going to be helping to uh, cover up and heal that uh, dural compromise. Um, Real, the last couple things here real quickly, you know, evidence for autologous blood patch, we brought up that study done in 1970. Uh, subsequent to that, Dr. Um, Abelish uh, and his colleagues in 1975, they did a, a, a large evaluation here, 524 cases of uh, posterior puncture headache treated with autologous epidural blood patch, 11 medical centers, and what they found was a 95% uh, um, uh, success rate in terms of improvement of the posterior puncture headache with the blood patch. In that study, they found that 15 milliliters um, or higher was found to be superior, although importantly, greater than 20 milliliters did not necessarily seem to have uh, an, an advantage. So it was really that um, 20 milliliters that seemed to be the uh, goal. And that was reproduced, as I'll talk about in a second, uh, in terms of optimal volume studies. Um, there was a Cochrane review in 2010. Again, further evidence here. So nine studies were reviewed, 379 patients, and they found that therapeutic autologous epidural blood patch resulted in less persistent posterior puncture headache compared to conservative management with an, uh, uh, an odds ratio of 0 0.18. And the last study I'll bring up here before we conclude is the optimal volume studies, uh, or I should say the last studies I'll, I'll bring up here. So just real quickly, Dr. Candido, 2003, he recommended at least a volume of 15 milliliters when considering this treatment. And then Dr. Crawford and his colleagues found uh, 20 milliliters associated with a 96% success rate versus a 70% success rate with 6 to 15 milliliters. So as was kind of alluded to in multiple studies, if you are going to be performing this procedure in terms of the blood patch, you know, obviously depending upon the patients, because um, there is an endpoint in terms of worsening back pain or other symptoms when you're doing the blood patch, but if you can get to that 20 mLs, it seems to be the magic uh, number. Nice. Well, thanks for summarizing that literature. You know, obviously, guys, this is a complication of a procedure of procedures that are done on a very regular basis. This is a rare complication. Um, obviously, by the numbers that Dr. Carvel has presented, uh, not quite as rare as I think all of us would like it to be, um, with you know the the numbers coming anywhere from 0.2 up to 
you say 14 percent around 20 percent 20 percent and so you know I, I would say that for most of us that do these procedures on a regular basis these are th those numbers sound quite large um, but obviously depending on and what situation right I'm sure that if you're consistently doing lumbar punctures or, or spinal anesthesia there's you know there are there are different uh, there, there, um, I don't know, pra practices in terms of what you expect to see uh, but this is a known complication these are things that that you know unfortunately most of us will see in our career uh, and have to walk through with patients um, but I think that was a, a nice summary of kind of the entire spectrum of it but most importantly lying flat uh, pain control, uh, caffeine, but not too much, uh, and uh, and then you know when if the symptoms are bad enough or not improving in the time frame that uh, you and your patient are happy with, uh, doing a, a blood patch with 20 milliliters uh, is the ideal amount. Does that summarize it fairly well, Dr. K? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as Dr. Hub has brought up, walking the patient through that's the key. And I think with this complication and really any complication is. Uh, you know, making sure you're considering, okay, what, you know, what's the potential really serious complications that can develop here and make sure that you're monitoring that patient closely, uh, talking them through it, walking them through it. You know, that's uh, kind of the ideal way to manage any uh, potential issue uh, 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 with a patient. Absolutely. Communication is key. All right, guys, speaking of communication, communicate with us. Let us know what you think. Let us know uh, if there's anything that we can cover uh, that would be helpful for you. Uh, and definitely leave us a review for our uh, podcast. Spotify and iTunes seem to be the best places for you to leave reviews. We appreciate it. Now stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.